It's almost over. We are going home. That's um, that's the song I start to hear some of you hum halfway through my sermon. <laughs> please, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Paul is just starting out on his third missionary journey. Two weeks ago, we welcomed Paul to his first major stop on journey number three, the city of Ephesus. Remember? How many remember? George does. You recall Paul found about 12 disciples there, and we saw and read how those disciples were baptized in Jesus' name, received the Holy Spirit, and began speaking in tongues and prophesying. We pick up the action then right there, beginning at Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, so far, this story ought to ring familiar. We've seen this several times in Acts, right? Belief, baptism, and the Holy Spirit all come together with the result of spiritual gifts. And we've also seen over and over where Paul heads into a synagogue, boldly preaches the word of God, where some believe and some don't, and then it spills out into the agora, in this case a lecture hall, into the marketplace where primarily Gentiles hear the word. We've, we've seen this. So, so far, this is familiar territory to us in the study, our study of the book of Acts. But then, beginning in the next few verses, familiarity fades a bit. Luke, the author of Acts, very quickly takes us to less familiar territory. Let's see what happens, beginning in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs... There's a word you don't stumble on too much more today. The Greek there can even mean scarfs, some sort of scarf, not necessarily something that you blow your nose into. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sheva, Sheva is a Latin name meaning mind reader. So actually, seven sons of a guy known for mind reading, probably. A Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house, naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. 
Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly when they calculated the value of the scrolls. The total came to 50,000 drachmas. In today's money, somewhere in the range of $5 million worth of scrolls. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, think Greece. And after I've been there, meaning Jerusalem, Paul said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he, Paul, stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. And so after taking us through familiar territory at first, Luke then spills an unusual amount of ink focusing on Paul's ministry in the miraculous. I mean, he even uses the phrase, extraordinary miracles in verse 11, right? Which every time I read it, it happened again this morning, it makes me smile a bit because that seems a bit redundant, doesn't it? Right? Extraordinary miracles. I mean, what, as opposed to common, ho-hum, run-of-the-mill, boring, ordinary miracles? I mean, aren't all miracles by definition extraordinary? They're miracles. And so maybe this rather curious phrase, extraordinary miracles, is Luke's way of saying, okay, buckle up, get the heavy waiters out. I'm about to tell you something unusual, something special happens in, in Ephesus. And we just heard that unusual special story, right? I, I mean, there's handkerchiefs and aprons that cure illnesses and cast out evil spirits, of all things. There's Jewish exorcists. There's a demon that talks back. And get this. There's a demon-possessed man who beats the tar out of seven sons of a Jewish chief priest called Mind Reader. That's a mouthful. There's sorcerers. There's magic scrolls. There's even a book burning or a scroll burning, if you prefer. No, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Oz either, but we are in Ephesus. These are things that we don't see, many of us, every day. Extraordinary miracles, extraordinary power displays, extraordinary stuff of the supernatural realm indeed. Luke wasn't kidding when he said extraordinary miracles. Now, why do you suppose, why do you suppose we get this rather sudden explosion, this sudden emphasis and detail from Luke of the miraculous, of the supernatural? I I wonder if the context of Ephesus has anything to do with it. For you see, the city of Ephesus was world-renowned as a center, a center for the learning and practice of magical arts. Did you know that? Even the phrase Ephesian writings or Ephesian letters or Ephesian books, if you were living in the first century and said, hey, you got any Ephesian writings or have you heard of these Ephesian books? Even that phrase was commonly used to describe documents containing spells and incantations. Hmm, any documents containing spells and incantations in our story this morning? And consider this as well. Almost every commentator, they point out that 
Paul's most complete study of spiritual powers, Paul's most detailed writing of the battle that Christians face against spiritual powers, guess what book they fall in? They fall in the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to Ephesus. Coincidence? The last two major stops that Paul had on his previous missionary journey were Athens and Corinth, remember? And Luke gives us no record of miracles in either city. Not even a passing reference. But now in Ephesus, the miraculous just inundates Luke's story. Is that a coincidence that it just happens to be in Ephesus? In my opinion, a key reason, or at least one reason, for for Luke's sudden emphasis on the supernatural is because Paul is in Ephesus. Ephesus, the, the magic kingdom, if you will, of the first century. The culture of the city, in particular, is steeped in the supernatural. They're into magic and the occult and, the, and supernatural displays of power. And so perhaps in Ephesus especially, there's a need to demonstrate the power of God over these forces that the Ephesians know so well and hold so dear. In other words, when, when God uses chooses to use the tool of extraordinary miracles in Ephesus to witness who He is, He's speaking their language, maybe in a, in a best attempt, perhaps, to convince them to, to turn to him rather than to any other gods. It's as, it's as if God is saying something like, oh, so, so you Ephesians, you're impressed with the supernatural. Think that's pretty special, huh? Well, I, I know a thing or two about supernatural power. Watch this. Now will you follow me? And the Ephesians hear God and respond to Him in part at least because God in love speaks the truth in their language, their culture of the supernatural. God one-ups, or maybe even you know ten-ups, the best that they got on the supernatural front. And they believe. Now the story of the seven sons of Sheva it's one of my favorites in all the book of Acts, certainly, and maybe even in all the Bible. And I have a confession. I may need forgiveness for this. One reason, one reason it's my favorite is because the whole thing really strikes me as hilarious. Okay? Is that bad? Now, that's just one reason I like it. It's not the only reason. It's not the main reason. But the whole scene, these seven sons, they're running around like the Keystone Cops. Yeah, and if you're under, what's a keystone cop? Okay. They're running around like the Three Stooges. You know the Three Stooges? Oh, come on. Cable TV, TV, you know, in this case, the Seven How about Mr. Bean? I don't know. SpongeBob? <laughs> well, it, the point is, they, these guys, these, these sons, they're in way over their heads. They're playing with matches next to a ton of dynamite on the dynamite, striking mat. And the whole thing suddenly totally out of control, blows up in their face. And I'm sorry, it just cracks me up a bit. Maybe physical humor I find funny. I don't know. It's, 
It's like watching those home videos, you know, those TV shows where people send in their home videos where someone does something, you know, really stupid, falls off a roof or into a swimming pool or something, right? Have you seen those? Some guy stacks four or five ladders on top of each other to reach the top of the roof and then climbs up on on there, you know, the ladders are like swaying. And we said, watch that video mesmerized because you just know what's going to happen. And sure enough, the whole thing just comes crashing down. And after we're sure they're all right, hopefully, you know, we laugh at how someone could be so stupid. And probably deep down, if we're honest, maybe we're laughing a little bit at ourselves, too, because we know. But for the grace of God, someone might well have videotaped us doing something equally stupid. Yes. Well, anyway, these seven sons and, you know, I blame Luke for this, too. When I see Luke one day in heaven, I'm going to ask him, hey, Luke, come on. Tell me, when you were writing this story of what happened with these seven sons, I mean, were you at least just giggling a little bit? Because there's something about the way he writes it, or maybe it's just in the translation into English. The way the story's written it almost seems intentionally funny. I mean, get this. Here are these seven sons, okay? Seven boys. I don't know why, but I picture a group of teens. If there's seven of them, maybe a couple of them at least are teens. It stands to reason. Or maybe it's just because I get to spend so much time with amazing teenagers. And this is just the type of thing that a group of teenage guys at least would get themselves into. And, and, and here they are. You know, they're cruising Ephesus one day, right? On their donkey or whatever Ephesian teens cruise the city with. And they see Paul. And he's doing his thing. And they check it out. And before long... They connect a dot. They realize something. And take a rocket scientist to figure it out if you spent any time watching Paul. Hmm. Every time this guy uses the name Jesus, these evil spirits obey. Right? They figure that out. Jesus, evil spirits leave. People very, very grateful. Maybe even so grateful they'd pay for it. And these teens are like, we get this. And I, forgive me, you guys, teens, I'm picking on you here a bit, I know, but it's because I love you guys. At least you're out there. Isn't it just like a, a teen to see, see this cool display of power, these Jesus X games going on, right? And despite, you know, any tingle of common sense or warning perhaps about not trying this at home, these guys get together and say, cool, let's try it. So they bomb around Ephesus, trying to use Jesus' name to drive out evil spirits. And then one day, they have the grave misfortune of cornering, perhaps, a particularly powerful demon. And again, God forgive me to be a fly on the wall in that house on that day. I would have loved to have seen it. Can you just see these guys? You know, maybe they're into some sort of shtick for show. Yes? And maybe there's seven of them. They for, maybe they hold hands and form a circle around this guy as he lays on his bed or something. I don't know. Someone lights some incense, right? Shut the curtains so it's dark in there. Guy's laying on his bed, maybe in the middle of them. Someone starts praying over them. And then, and, and then one of them doing his best Paul imitation, using perhaps his best theater voice for dramatic effect. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. 
And then maybe his brother across the circle catches his eye and looks at him and goes, Good job. Way to go. For our website listeners, maybe the brother catches them. Good job. Way to go. And they wink at each other. And they're feeling pretty good about this. Well, let's do that. And then, oh, to have seen the looks on their faces when that demon answered back. You know those MasterCard commercials? Priceless. (laughs) Maybe the man with the demon jumps to his feet... And for the first time, peers deeply into the eyes of whoever tried to just use Jesus' name. And the demon says, Jesus, I know. And I've heard of Paul. And then maybe the man leans in closer, takes the kid by the front of his coat, and he hisses, but who are you? And Luke doesn't say it, but is the kid thinking, Mommy? And then, quite literally, really, and I don't use this word lightly, quite literally, really, all heck breaks loose. This demon using this man's body, no doubt giving him supernatural strength, this possessed man jumps on them, the text says. And did you notice, did you notice, or did you think when you read, this fight might, uh, must have lasted a while? I mean, it had to take a while, doesn't it? That This guy gets to every last one of them, all seven of them. Even tears off their clothes. Now that's got to take some time. And I don't know what these sons are doing. They apparently didn't bolt for the door right away. Or maybe they tried and the guy wouldn't let them go. Maybe he got to the door first. Or or maybe they tried to fight back, right? Well, that was a mistake. Can't you see that this guy jumps on the first son, the others run to his aid, jump all over the guy, and then the guy just stands there fighting? Or sits there fighting with all seven sons, you know, grabbing a piece of them somewhere. You know, the the movie, The Hulk, is coming again soon, right? And if you go see it, maybe you'll see a scene there that reminds you, oh yeah, that's like the seven sons of Sheva, right? The Hulk standing there with guys hanging on him in futility. Maybe someone grabs a chair, crashes it over the guy's head. That didn't work, just made him matter. Maybe a few of them at least, you know, keep trying Jesus' name. Right? Well, it didn't work once. Maybe we didn't say it. So here's this guy. He's chasing after one of them, right? So the guy's chasing it, and the guy's, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And finally, he yells to his brother, Reuben, help! Grab the guy's legs or something. I, I don't know. Another illustration or possible picture of what that fight might have been like came to me this week, and Here's another confession on my part. Please don't judge me too harshly this morning, okay? But what came to mind was those old vampire movies. Yeah, I, yes, yes, I used to watch those things. I'm sorry. If you haven't, then good for you. But, but one popular scene in many vampire movies is at some point, right, a guy gets up and holds the cross. Takes two sticks or something, holds the cross. In front of that vampire who's getting them. Have you seen it? You don't have to admit it. Okay. And then at first, the vampire goes, But then in many of the movies, all of a sudden a smile appears on the vampire's face, and he comes after the guy with the... And why the movies even catch this? Why? It doesn't work, because the guy holding the cross doesn't have true faith in it 
or more theologically correct, although we're in the fantasy world of vampires, the guy doesn't have a, a, a real relationship, a genuine faith. And, and, and keep that point in mind. We'll come back to it later. See, even vampire movies from time to time can stumble across truth once in a while. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Still probably not worth watching them. I don't know. Anyway, I, I confess I would have indeed liked to have seen all that. And, and I'm pretty sure, part of me at least, I might have smiled a bit, hopefully with some compassion and hopefully because I know at the end that they, at least they all survive. But I think perhaps Luke intended at least a smile, if not a chuckle here, over the sheer folly, stupidity of these boys. Boys who get caught up on four swaying ladders that come crashing down. Boys... Boys caught playing with matches entirely too close to dynamite. What's their mistake here, these seven sons of Sheva, in this story? Many ways you could phrase it. Here's one. Their mistake is their faith isn't real. It isn't genuine. It's not grounded in God's Word. Now, while this grounding in God's Word is not the focal point of the message this morning, please allow me a commercial. Don't miss the fact, please, before all of this supernatural display of God's power, Paul first preached the Word for three months. And he preached and taught for an additional two years. He had it out there until everyone heard it in the entire province of Asia. This idea, the idea that maybe we sometimes stumble across, that somehow we can divorce the Word of God from effectively ministering to the world is dead wrong, in my opinion. If Paul hadn't sown the seed of God's Word out into that community, would any extraordinary miracles have followed? If you wish to, to quibble with that, ask yourself, that why would Luke give us that story of Paul extensively preaching the Word to reach the whole province of Asia, why would he use that story to introduce the signs and wonders going off and running? You've heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again. Signs and wonders and the Word of God always, always, always go hand in hand. And so here it is again in Ephesus and Asia. The Sheva boys, they don't take their faith or belief seriously or to heart. It, it seems for them faith in Jesus is reduced to an add-on or, or, or a sticky note to whatever it else they're into or doing in life. They've got no concept, really, that, that faith in Jesus has to be taken seriously to have any use whatsoever. They wade into this very serious battle against evil, probably with the motive for financial gain so they can compete better with Paul's wildly successful ministry. But they go in to this very serious battle against evil like it's some kind of walk in the park. Maybe their attitude toward the power of Jesus' name was something like this. You tell them, tell them that the magic words of <laughs> 
diddle-doo magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Now salad the doodle me and then you can fool a roo. Of the thing in the box that does the job is Spiritual realm, supernatural realm, is not a joke. Shava boys go in there with Jesus' name like his name is Abracadabra or Open Sesame. Like his name is Bippity Boppity Boo. Someone this week will ask you what you learned in church. You say, we learned that Jesus' name is not Bippity Boppity Boo. They might look at you funny, but hopefully you can explain See, if we treat Jesus' name like that, you know, we're no match for the devil. In fact, if we treat Jesus' name like that, the devil, if he even chooses to bother with us at all, I'm not sure he would, because why would he be concerned with us? He'll beat us until we're naked and bleeding and running from houses. The Sheva boys somehow thought that Jesus' name alone without a real and genuine faith in Jesus, one that produced acts of love for God and others. They thought that just the name alone was good enough. They somehow thought that, that knowing about Jesus could substitute for truly knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. They thought they could go through the motions. They thought that if they only knew the correct formula... If they only got the program, if they only understood the right doctrine, if they only just said the right things, if they only just learned to talk the talk, everything would be all right. They thought they could skip the hard work of obedience to God and loving others. They thought they could skip that and still be effective in ministry. They figured it would be just fine if, if they wanted the power that God has to offer for motives other than love of God and love of others. Well, they were wrong. And are we only talking about Sheva's boys this morning? Or does some of this at least ring true for some of us like it does for me? Do we ever just go through the motions? We know about Jesus, but do we truly know Him as Lord and Savior of our lives? Do we compromise on the hard work of knowing the Word? Do we compromise on the hard work of obedience? And as Jesus defines obedience, compromise on the hard work and sacrifice of love of God, especially, he says, by loving others? $8,600. Are we ever satisfied when our own faith rests on correct doctrine, but never truly transforms us, never truly becomes alive in us in our actions of love toward God and others, making a difference in their lives? Does that ever satisfy us? 
Knowing about God is no substitute for knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. Every bit of our lives, every corner, every relationship, every detail, every thought, every action. Jesus tells us we're to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, all our mind. And that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our faith, our belief, our trust must include all of every part of us including our actions, go figure. And if it does not, then in James' words, for one, our faith is dead. It's useless. If we simply believe about Jesus, then congratulations, we and the devil believe the same thing. Because even he believes about Jesus. Jesus, but if our belief transforms how we live, if our faith shows itself in our works, if our faith compels us to love God and others in everything we do, there is then and only then true power in Jesus' name. The Sheva boys missed that part. Maybe they thought the whole thing was just silly. We'll just use the magic words. We'll just use Jesus' name. What a silly idea to commit our whole lives to Jesus. When we could just cut that corner and go straight for the free blessings, at least as the world defines them. And you know, making us think that love and obedience and all-out active faith is silly, making us think that is a tool of the devil. Have you noticed? Commit to God? How silly. You don't need to make that all-out sacrificial commitment. After all, the devil assures us, you're saved by grace and grace alone. Why worry? Be happy. Whee! Now hear me. The devil takes truth, even that great truth statement. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace and grace alone through no merit whatsoever of our own. He takes it, though. He takes that true statement of grace and grace alone, and he twists it. And he twists it to suggest that grace means sacrificial love is easy or isn't necessary as a child of God. Well, he's wrong. There's a different kind of silliness to talk about here, too. One more silly example, you might say. First, yes, we should think, we shouldn't think that total commitment, true active faith is optional, that it's just silly. And second, we also shouldn't think that spiritual warfare, the supernatural, is just silly either. If either of these two things are just silly to us, frankly, we, uh, we become pretty much useless for God. Remember, Ephesus and the fact that the Ephesians took spiritual powers and supernatural and the supernatural very, very seriously. They didn't think spiritual powers were silly. It's one of the reasons I suggested to you that that God poured out his supernatural power in Ephesus, because it was something the Ephesians knew and respected. It was their language. And so God responded by speaking to them in their language. I have a question for us this morning. Two, I guess. Do we take 
spiritual powers or the supernatural seriously? Or is the whole thing just silly? Many of you know, um, Jill and I, my wife Jill and I, we take dancing lessons, ballroom dancing lessons at Arthur Murray. And um, every once in a while they get together and they have um, a time where you come and you dance in front of all the other students that are taking lessons. Okay? It's always a white knuckle time. drives me crazy. But there we are one night, not too long ago, a few months ago, and there's 30 couples. I think there's about 30 couples, and we're all sitting there. And they've got all the names of the couples in a big fishbowl. And they draw out the names of the fishbowl, so it's random that the order of the, you know, that the couples are going to dance. You know, nobody wants to be first, right? So everybody, they reach for the fishbowl, and Jill and I are like, oh, I don't want to be first. So they pick it out, and it's someone else. So then we wait. Now... Something happens over the course of the two hours of that evening that I'm still trying to unravel. Maybe some of you can help me after you hear the story to unravel it. But right from about the third or fourth couple on, something welled up in that room. And the spirit of the room of the time of the event that welled up was in the corner of that dance studio on a little pedestal was a little gold statue of Buddha. And what welled up in that room was after the name was announced of who was next, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, welcome into the... Not really Fred, you don't know who that is either. Yes, you do. Everybody would clap, and what started to build was the people would also say, hey, go rub the belly of the Buddha for luck. Hey, oh yeah, that's kind of fun. Walk over there and they rub the belly. Everybody go, oh yeah, belly of the Buddha. And then they go and they do their dance. And it came to like dominate that, that whole thing of rubbing. It's like the people started chanting it. Buddha's belly, Buddha's belly, Buddha's belly. Couple five, six, seven, nine, ten, twelve. And it's like people were thinking more and looking forward to chanting that than they were to watching the dance. Now, Jill and I are sitting there, we're in the front row, and we're sitting in a corner so people can kind of see us, and we're kind of watching, and we're not chanting, and we're, so we're just kind of smiling, and then finally, you know, this thing is so big, and, and, I, and I, I just, I whispered to Jill, and I said, he said you know, because someone's like, said, I am not getting anywhere near that idol. And Jill says, me neither. And I said, well, honey, start preparing because I'm going to have to say something. (laughs) Nice. And then I threw one out there, which I knew was a joke, unless you'd like to. (laughs) Jill's very quiet. I don't mean to suggest she wouldn't be as... But she, in public speaking, unless you get her for aerobics. She, yeah. So now I'm, and she said, yeah, okay. So now I'm, I'm, I'm doubly sweating because Jill doesn't forget our dance steps, but I do. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, what is it we're doing? Is it salsa or foxtrot? Or by, how, how, you know, I, but now I'm thinking, what am I going to say? You know, I don't want to preach a sermon. Brevity's not my strength. So I don't. 
you know, and I'm torn. I'm, I'm kind of torn from one end of I'm kind of, if I get up there and they start, rub the belly, rub, you know, part of me is like, you're all going to hell. <laughs> you know? not very secret sensitive of me and again and i don't think the right approach we could talk about that another time at least in that circumstance but then the other side right the other side is well the other side of me is i'm still waffling with oh you know just go and touch it you know or if you say something i'm kind of resolved or say something like hey you know friends that might be a fun and cool thing, but it's just not ours. It's good for you, but, you know, it's just, I, can we just dance, you know, I make a joke, you know. I'm a pastor of a church, you know, you can't have me. Oh, that, oh yeah, that's a thing. You know, or somewhere in between, and I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to say. And then every time the fishbowl, I'm thinking, is it now? No, not yet. I'm a wreck. And guess what happens? The fishbowl gets down uh, 30 couples, 27, 28, not us, 29, not us. We're last. And this thing is like thundering loud now. Billy of the Buddha, Billy. And they dance. It says, here it comes. Pull out the name, Todd and Jill Anting. And, and we walk up there, and now's when the chanting begins. And Jill and I start this routine facing each other. And I turn to address this, and I'm ready. I'm going to say something. I don't even know what. As God is my witness, I'm going to say, I think what was on my mind is, I'm sorry, I'm not getting anywhere near that idol. It's a little sharp, but I, I don't know. And, and do you know what happened? Not one word. We got up there, and we like, Clapping stopped. And we danced uh, Love and Marriage, Frank Sinatra's Love and Marriage Foxtrot. I don't know how we got through it, because both of us the whole time are, it's hard to put you there, are, are trembling with sort of the, what had just happened. And I'm still, that's what I mean, I'm still unpacking it. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if God was testing us, if we really would, and it wasn't the right time. I'm not sure if I blew it, and I should have interrupted it before it, and just stood up and said something. You know, would you please? It's really offensive. I, I don't know. But what's clearly on our hearts was, that was a God thing, because there was a spirit there that was just, it, it is inexplicable, supernatural, that that didn't happen. And I wonder... At least if in small measure, maybe God was honoring, or maybe if there was a demonic, they knew it wasn't silly to us. Rubbing Buddha's belly, bippity-boppity-boo, a host of other fun magic of Disney. Here comes one. Brace yourself. <laughs> Witch and devil costumes on Halloween, fortune cookies, calling a psychic hotline. I did that once. Not seriously. I did it. You know, I did it. I did it in college. I, I wanted to mess with the psychic by talking to her about Jesus. <laughs> she hung up on me. 
that eight ball thing, you know, where you shake it and it gives you the answer? Horoscopes, I don't know. You th- Are these things all just harmless fun? And, you know, maybe for you, where you are, it's harmless fun, maybe. But what about for others, perhaps whose faith isn't as strong and sees you, knowing you're Christian, messing around with these things, however harmless they might be for you? Might these things and things like them also be a part, also be a part of, the, of the devil's subtle but effective silliness campaign? His campaign to keep people laughing at an all-encompassing, all-out, intense faith. To keep people laughing at the seriousness of spiritual forces and the spiritual battle waging around us and even in us. See, the devil's clever. He's clever. He knows if he manages to keep us from taking him too seriously, if he manages to, you know, Jesus and the whole religion thing, it's just kind of a sticky note onto whatever else you want to do. Go for it. If he manages us, manages to make us think the whole spiritual warfare, serious faith thing is silly, he wins. That battle, at least, over our witness. If we think true faith or spiritual warfare is silly, we'll never truly, or at least effectively, fight against evil. Why fight over something silly or something we don't take seriously? And maybe, just maybe, the reason why more people don't experience the extraordinary miracles that Ephesus did is because they think the spiritual, supernatural realm is just silly. Or at least they don't take it seriously. My brother-in-law, David, recently came back from Qatar. He works for and with a healing ministry. And an excerpt from an email he sent, um, I'd like to share with you in closing. That's what David wrote about his trip. Another big highlight for me was on the last night, we held a healing service in the underground church in Qatar. I had prayed for several people and watched as God healed two sinus conditions, and I saw a man with no self-esteem see the Father's love and pride for him for the first time. And then a tall, young Indian girl approached me. He later told me, uh, he guessed, about in her 20s. She was graceful and lovely and had a beautiful spirit. She asked quietly, will you pray for me? I smiled and said, of course I would pray for her. She then said hesitantly, but I'm not a Christian, I'm Hindu. I smiled again and replied, that's okay, God loves you too. And I asked her what I could pray for. And she said that she was having terrible pain in her stomach and and no one knew what was causing it. I asked her to place her hand on the spot where it was hurting. I asked her permission and told her I was going to place my hand on hers and, and ask God to heal her. As soon as I put my hand on hers and asked the Holy Spirit to come, she was overwhelmed by the power of the Lord and slumped to the ground, apparently unconscious. She laid there completely motionless as I prayed quietly over her that the Lord would draw her to Him and heal her. I went on to pray for for several other people but kept an eye on her. She was down laying on the floor for about ten minutes until I, I, I saw her start to get up. 
She was clearly stunned and overwhelmed by what had just happened. She unsteadily got to her feet and, and had her hands sort of covering her face as if she was in a state of awe. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, awe. I went over and asked her quietly if the pain in her stomach was gone. She nodded her head and started to cry. I could tell that she was still so overwhelmed I shouldn't press anything further, at least not now. So I looked into her eyes and simply said, God really, really loves you. The tears kept rolling down her face as she went to sit down. See, this... Um, this Hindu girl, being Hindu, being in that culture, knows and respects and takes seriously the supernatural. She didn't find it silly. And so between David's real faith and her respect of the supernatural, this girl experienced what, what I'd call an extraordinary miracle any day. Coincidence? I told David, um, I suspect that if a demon was involved in that young woman's pain, if we could ask it, it would tell us that it knows Jesus and it has also heard of you, David. You know, may it be said of all of us, my brothers and sisters, that we take our faith seriously. It's an active faith based on a personal relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. All of it. It's an active faith that loves God and others. And it's an active faith that understands the reality and the seriousness of the spiritual realm. Amen? Next week, Luke follows the story, this story, with examples of, of what happens when people take their faith seriously in loving others the impact of it is huge i hear word that there's even a riot brewing in ephesus you don't want to miss the riot i know i won't um it's memorial day next week i understand we have plans if you're close enough if you're near enough if you can include us in your plans we'd love to have you let's pray father in heaven wow you are a god who performs extraordinary miracles God, would you impress upon us, would you even give us as the author of our faith, that kind of all-out active faith that isn't satisfied with personal salvation alone, but is moved and motivated and touched in compassion and passion for others and pushed by the Holy Spirit. Allow us, Father, to let the Holy Spirit push us to get out there and do something about our personal salvation. That is, as your Son says, and as you say repeatedly in this book, to get out there and love on people so they know that you and you alone are God and there is salvation in Jesus' name. Would you use us in that way and give us what it takes to do that in partnering with you, Father, please. Father, we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Praise God. If you'd like to pray with us, someone will be down front to pray with you. Please. Stop by and see the Peru kiosk. 
These kids need you. They need us. Ask them how you can help. I'm sure they'll tell you. God bless you.